Hi, and welcome to Macro Matters. My name's Stephanie Kelly, and together with my co-host, Paul Diggle, we guide you through this complex world of politics, economics, and markets. And this week, in the wake of the G7 and the NATO summits, we're going to be delving into the US-China relations, asking how has the Biden administration impacted this relationship? And then going on to talk about what a more protectionist world might mean for the hot topic among investors at the moment, inflation. To help me dig into all of this, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Jeremy Lawson, Director and Chief Economist of the Aberdeen Standard Investments Research Institute and regular on this show. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks, Steph. It's great to be here. How are things? Hi, yeah, not too bad. So let's maybe kick off and talk about the geopolitics of the US-China relationship, which is something we've talked about a ton on this podcast before, the nature of the US-China relationship, the tensions, particularly under the Trump administration. Maybe a good place to start is to talk about, you know, the G7 was seen as this sort of welcome wagon for Biden to join the political multilateral sphere and set the US out as a new active participant in global democratic multilateralism. What do you think about, I guess, how the entire event went and particularly the US role in it and the role also that China, while not actively at the event, had to play in the whole weekend? Yeah, it's interesting. So I always have low expectations for these set piece events uh, in, I think in large part because the history is that a lot of the time there are very few concrete binding actions that emanate from the discussions. And so the communiques sort of represent in a sense, shared views where they exist, but often actually it's what's not said or looking looking between the lines where, where, where the real information is here. So, so from my side, what was probably more interesting was the way that, so on, on the one hand, the Biden administration is looking to repair relationships with allies. And so the this was a friendlier G7 meeting than many of the meetings between Trump uh, and other G7 leaders had been. Clearly, though, the Biden administration is still very focused on the China conundrum, as I'll call it, right? So what to do about China from an international perspective through the prism of, of, China, of, of domestic US politics. But then also then the ongoing struggles the US is still having, getting its allies to sing from the same hymn sheet, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, Steph, this is something that you've written and talked about a lot, but so I don't know whether you got the same impression, but, but that was my takeaway was that although there is common ground, there are clearly still some very important differences. And then that was reflected in the pretty lukewarm language uh, that related to China within the communiques and the, and, and the press at conferences. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I think that's, that's spot on. I always think, I always think with politicians, what would they do, not what they say. And these set piece events are opportunities to say things, but insofar as they even said very much at this event, I think you're right. There's a clear divergence in the way that, for example, Boris Johnson wanted to talk about China or the way that Angela Merkel wants to talk about China. You know, she's actively saying she wants China to be a part of solutions, particularly as it pertains to, yeah. to climate. 
But then you've got Biden who, you know, I think it was pretty clear and teed up going into this that he wanted, he is actively rallying countries together. I think he tried to put it under the auspices of the autocratic regimes, right? He said explicitly, this isn't about China. This is about autocratic regimes. But then if you follow that up with, and we're going to launch our own democratic alternative to the Belt and Road strategy, it's hard not to read that as being a China-focused approach to the way that you build a global, you know, multilateral approach. Yes, I I think that's right. This this phrase, autocratic regimes, uh, it is is meant to, well, it's meant to depersonalize, right? Sort of defocus the sense in which we've got a broader geopolitical strategy, which is attempting to pin autocratic regimes back and i think also my guess is that within his within sort of biden's sort of advisory group they probably settled this in part as a way of distinguishing themselves from the trump administration because trump was often not unreasonably seen as being closer to some autocratic regimes Uh, and so this is a way of differentiating while still maintaining what is clearly again as you say look at what we're doing not just what we're saying a very sort of pointed um multi-focused sort of strategy to pin china back in a a range of ways yeah exactly and i think that you've kind of pinpointed there some of the the differences between the trump approach and the biden approach when it comes to the china relationship and what struck me at the g7 and since biden has taken office is that if you have a a u.s ally who is much more politically multilateralist, much more keen to work with other um, allies, but who continues to have, you know, very cautious and very explicit views around the role of China in the global economy. And in particular, you know, Biden's focused on issues like human rights and transparency. But what he's also been able to do is because he's part of that group now, it puts them under, to my mind, more pressure to almost pick a side or at least to speak out against China yeah. in certain areas. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, look, I, I think that that's certainly one of the objectives of the US administration is to put those allies in a position where at least, if not outright picking a side, certainly leaning in the direction of the US. But let's let's take climate as an example of why I think this is so difficult. Um, uh, Europe recognises, like we all do, that there is no long-term climate solution without China's full participation, right? Uh, China is the world's largest emitter. At the moment, it's sort of pledged to a net zero 2060 sort of target, but without actually reducing the absolute level of of, of emissions till 2030, there can be no... Uh, there can be no constructive Glasgow meetings without some yeah. China's full participation um, and working towards a common solution. But also, it's, there, there, there are other angles to it. it. There's the fact that Europe and many other countries are very dependent uh, on the supply of renewable-related technology, which is itself then dependent on other countries achieving their emission objectives. And then even if we're sort of thinking about, well, who are the players we can constructively negotiate with? So on the one hand, you might say, well, the US is a natural ally, but actually you could argue that the US's high level emissions objectives are even less credible than China's 
because of the domestic political considerations in the US and the fact that the two parties have completely different visions for what the future should look like. And so from that perspective, Europe has to be quite clear, right? So it's got this natural alliance structure through NATO and other types of relationship, but its objectives are broader. And actually in some of those areas, China may be a more constructive partner than the US. So they have to tread this really careful line between them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, it's sort of on the one hand, ideology, you know, beliefs around the role of, of democracy and, and free speech, and therein human rights on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's the real economic and uh, yeah. economic ties. And as you've rightly pointed out, the role that China has to play when it comes to climate. So we think it's hard to feel like this is something that's going to get resolved really quickly. And one of the things we often get asked, we always talk about US-China decoupling, you know, over time. When people say to us, but when will that happen? That's harder to pinpoint, right? It feels like the relations continue to become more challenging. But at what point does that tension between the incentives for Europe and other allies to align with the US and the incentives for them to not align with the US when it comes to China. At what point does that pinch point come through? And it feels really hard to say when that will happen. So the, the when is a difficult question. And it may be actually it's the wrong question in the sense of in the same way as as soon as the Brexit referendum took place and the result was clear, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about Brexit being a process, not an event. Right. Well, well the US decoupling or the fragmentation, as I'd prefer to call it, of the US-China relationship will be a multi-decadal process, right? This is this is something that um, these tensions were becoming clearer towards the end of the Obama administration. Um, the Trump administration codified or symbolized that um, but with a with a dose of rhetoric that made it sound like it was all unraveling incredibly quickly. Uh, the reality, though, is that you can't decouple rapidly uh, and that relationships is intertwined in many ways. Uh, I think so what we can be confident about is the direction of travel. What we can be less confident about is is the speed of change. Um, and then I think that is sort of challenging for markets, you know, sort of bring it back to that, that, that question. What markets struggle to digest times under the Trump administration is, well, what was the true signal? Right? What's the information content and what is he saying? And so you swung through the tweeting process between, oh my gosh, we're entering a, an enormous disruptive trade war to I actually know this is just a slightly more volatile vision of the status quo. And so then market pricing is constantly adjusting or having to reprice on that basis. Um, whereas under the Biden administration, it feels more predictable that I think helps explain why amongst many investors, they're now saying, well, geopolitics is not a particularly important sort of risk for us that we're taking into account, at least on a cyclical horizon. But underneath the surface, the same structural trend is in place. And I think will continue to be very important for thinking about the structure of the global economy and the nature of returns and what you can be confident about and less confident about over time. So actually, I think in some ways it's become harder to invest around geopolitics. Yeah, because you don't have those kind of specific, yeah. Exactly, exactly. because the mood music makes it, I think in some ways harder because Biden's trying to give the impression of incrementalism, um, Mm -hmm. but actually things are happening more significantly underneath the surface. Yeah, yeah, totally. And to be honest, 
it is one of the great frustrations, I think, about trying to, to speak to investors about politics, because there's often a perception that if there isn't an impending announcement or an announcement that's just come or an election, then political risk is off the table when actually, as you've rightly pointed yeah. out, particularly with Biden, things are going through and things are happening, you know, within the congressional side that have really meaningful impacts on the way that US and Chinese investors can interact and the way technology and fir firms can interact with the US economy, right? It's huge. Well, exactly. Or, or maybe another way to put it is um, this question of the future of globalization, and uh, I think we were probably going to lead on to this sort of soon anyway, um, it comes up regularly, but it comes up often in this context that weakening globalization is brand new, right? This is just yeah. something that's happened in the last one to two or three years. It's just, that's fundamentally untrue, right? So uh, if you look at um, the growth rate of global trade relative to the growth rate of global GDP, right? There was the rule of thumb before the financial crisis was that global trade was growing at about twice the rate of global GDP. Um, and, then, and then after the financial crisis and particularly after after, after 2010, you sort of settled into a much weaker sort of structural environment. So this was present in trade flows. It was present in cross-border capital flows. You see it in momentum behind global trade agreements, global liberalization, whether it be regional or global. So the momentum behind globalization, or at least the trade and capital components of globalization, were weakening, weakening well before Trump became president, right? So this is, yeah. again, the, the incentive structures were already shifting. Uh, and so, again, it's, it's very important to, to have that background and take that into account. And so when you widen your lens in that way and you realise, well, this is already 11 years in the making, right? So this shift, the breakpoint isn't the pandemic. The breakpoint wasn't the Trump administration. Actually, the breakpoint of anything was the global financial crisis. Well, then you start to see things in a quite a different, in a quite a different way. And I think that leads us really well onto the second part of this episode, which is around talking about the inflationary consequences. And you've slightly, uh, I guess, made a good point there, which is all of a sudden, I think when you when you talk about this idea that globalization has been slowing for some time, obviously investors have only started paying attention, particularly to US-China tensions yeah. since the Trump administration thereafter. And I think one natural question we get a lot is how significant are the inflationary implications of a US-China trade war? And maybe let's start with Jeremy, if you could just, for those listeners who aren't economists, maybe just give a bit of a sense of how a trade war could in theory even affect inflation? Well, I mean, I think the simplest way to think about it is that is that trade has a major effect uh, on uh, on the, the nature of competition uh, and price pressures within industry. So, for example, um, as, as nearly everybody I presume listening knows, that over the course of the last 40 years, there's been a pretty steady reduction in the manufacturing share of economic activity across the advanced economies. Uh, and where um, this is partly because of strong productivity growth, or you don't need as many people, um, uh, to to undertake a particular amount of activity, but but also because the supply chains have been sort of broken up and large amounts of activity shifted to emerging economies, and China is arguably the largest sort of relative winner from that particular exercise. But that process of 
effectively locating production in places where it can be done most efficiently, taking into account the wages that prevail in those locations, is something that's put downward pressure on the prices where that globalization has taken place, i.e., if, for example, the majority of the world's toy manufacturing hadn't shifted to China and other emerging economies over the last 40 years, we'd all pay a lot more for toys today. And so it's, that, that's a pretty sort of straightforward thing. Yeah. So why then does a trade war matter? Well, a trade war can be thought about as placing additional new barriers yeah. on those interlinkages where can production take place what is the even where it can are we going to effectively impose sort of new tariffs on that production or the imports the way to think about a tariff is it's a tax on consumption it's yeah. a tax on the consumption of an imported good now some of that tax can be absorbed into the profit margin of the producer right um but then but then chunks of it get passed on in fact there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the the tariffs that were opposed under the under the trump administration were passed on through supply chains and so it can have quite important effects on inflation through through that channel i mean it can simply just by making markets less contestable it can sort of weaken you know productivity growth in 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 the global trade of goods sector as well uh, and you know that in itself think of it as weakening the supply side of economies if it weakens the supply side of the economies you might get into a position of excess demand so so there's a relationship between spare capacity and underlying inflation at least in a longer term sense so there are a variety of ways that it can influence price developments both in short-term periods um, if you get like a sudden imposition of, of new barriers to trade but also sort of more sort of slowly and structurally over time so Maybe given what you've just said there, because one question that comes to my mind straight away, though, is you said, for example, it is evident that the tariffs between the US and China fell on fell on consumers, i.e. firms did not just completely absorb them. But that didn't show up in inflation. So I guess a natural question is how much is this relevant to the ongoing debate or fears about inflation? Or is this just a much, a much different beast? I think this is where, uh, again, you have to recognize there are certain things that we purchase that I think have more symbolic importance than if you to go through your entire household budget and work out how you allocate your money in a particular month. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it can turn out that well, let's take something like white goods. Right? People can have a pretty clear sense of, Oh, is, a, is the washing machine gone up in price? Has it gone down in price? This is one area where tariffs were imposed. But if you look at the average proportion of a household budget in a year that's devoted to white goods, it's actually tiny. So yeah. one answer to your question is, well, actually the proportion of consumer items that were affected by those tariffs is pretty small, not just in terms of their breadth across all consumer categories, but then obviously then in terms of the things that China has the, have, has the heaviest influence on. And so in some ways, that just means that the impact of it's not that it wasn't there, it's influencing the relative price of some goods in particular, but that gets sort of swamped 
by other factors that are influencing inflation and can matter just as much, if not more. So, for example, the ongoing sort of pace of technological change um, is arguably or you know, likely to have a much larger effect on generalised sort of goods price inflation services inflation over time. You have central banks that because they're targeting inflation, Right, they can be reacting to these shocks in real time um, or with a lag, but the point being that they're the last mover here, right? And so, uh, so if you're sort of trying to think about persistent effects, you have to take that into account. You have to be taking into account the state of the economy at a given time, what's happening to the exchange rate. So there are so many different moving parts and things that influence inflation in the aggregate, right? That that again, you sort of stand back from all of this and you can say, well, weakening globalization, you can think of that as a headwind or a tailwind to inflation um, in the sense of it puts upward pressure on some prices, but is not large enough and deterministic enough that it will determine the overall evolution of inflation in an economy. Again, see, think of the post-crisis period. I think it highlights this really well. You have weakening globalization, but an environment where most central banks found it very difficult to meet their inflation targets. That might seem like it's hard to reconcile, but I think is less so when you take into account it's just the fact that the globalization wasn't uh, pushing prices down as much as it did before, but all these other factors were doing even more work than they were in the earlier period. And it's the sum of these things that matters. I think that's a super helpful way to, to frame it and to put it into context as sort of a tailwind, but not deterministic of the overall inflation picture, which has so many different components in it. I'm afraid that is actually all the time we have. But thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was great to be on as usual. And, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And as always to our listeners, if you do have any comments on the discussion today or questions or ideas for future episodes, you can email us at macromatters at aberdeenstandard.com. We are also moving to a fortnightly schedule. So please join us in two weeks time when Paul's going to be talking about the US labor market. Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.